Remember, we have just finished at the end of Matthew 13 speaking about Jesus' return to Nazareth and the principle that a prophet was not without honor except in his own country and how true that axiom is and how familiarity breeds contempt. And we have to be careful for that to bring honor, as John spoke of this morning, to whom honor is due. What an appropriate principle for us to adhere to. Then Jesus comes, Matthew comes in further documentation of Jesus' life. He comes to the matter of Herod, the Tetrarch, and his unfortunate adulterous relationship with his brother Philip's wife. Herod was, again, apropos to our call to worship, Herod was a rich man. Herod was fabulously wealthy and would have suffered that same temptation to arrogance and overconfidence and a delusion that he was somehow in control of things that he wasn't actually in control of. And what made Herod's situation even more precarious was, you can tell from the other accounts in the Gospels, specifically Luke's account, you can tell that Herod had a quasi-interest in spiritual things. He was not completely disinterested in John the Baptist's ministry. In fact, he was attracted by some of the things that John had to say, and you could tell that he was sort of magnetized on a peripheral kind of basis to the ministry of John the Baptist. But it was not until, and it's so interesting, with all of the giftedness that John the Baptist had, with all of his obvious vocation being devoted to announcing the coming of the Messiah, which he would have done and which Herod would have had privy to in terms of, I don't know how much he would have heard it or the details that he would have processed on that level, but he did have this theme of his ministry of announcing the coming of the Messiah. And Herod, as I said, would have been privy to that. But what is interesting about this account is that none of that is what brings the, the head of John the Baptist into danger. What brings John the Baptist's life into danger is that John, as a prophet in Israel, had the responsibility to proclaim truth and righteousness, and he would have assumed the prerogative of making moral and ethical commentary on matters of state. Uh, you know, in, in the case of Israel, the state and the community of faith were so intertwined, and John had the prerogative and the platform to comment on the adultery of Herod the king. And it was that confrontation of a point of ethics in his life or a point of immorality in his life, that is the point that cost him his life. And so Herod's uh, overconfidence, and, and he would have not known the ultimate consequences of that overconfidence until judgment, and he will, he will reap those consequences. But Herod's, Herod's overconfidence reached to the point where he could even presume to take the head of one of God's most precious and mighty prophets. And what kind of judgment? 
and, and all of his, now here's the thing all of Herod's interest in spiritual things will come to naught because he was confronted with a sin in his life that he wouldn't deal with and then when he was pressured to quash that annoying and nagging voice in his life and it seems that it uh, got on the nerves of his wife more than it did his own and when it reached its precipice we saw and see in this text where his loyalties lie around that same time Jesus had that Jesus had gone home news about Jesus reached the governor so Herod said to his men John the Baptist has come back from the dead this is how he performs miracles you can tell in all of these accounts that Herod is preoccupied with the life and ministry of John the Baptist prior to this Herod had arrested John, tied him up, and thrown him in prison. All of this happened over the matter of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And here's, here, I mean, just, I just want you to listen to the simplicity of this statement. Not, it's not preachy. It's not aggressive. It's not arrogant. It is just straight and to the point. It is not lawful for you to have her. And that statement, reaching its obvious ramifications in emotion and thought, led to his death. Now, that's the, that's the issue. The adultery of Herod, John's confrontation of Herod leading to his imprisonment and his death. But here's what I want to point out to you at went out to you as being thematic in this entire chapter. I want you to look at this sort of as we typically do. We'll try to sort of take an angle of what's going on narratively speaking in a passage and see if there's a theme. Remember we did this in Matthew 13. We looked at what the theme of the chapter was. And I think it's very appropriate to say that you could point out the theme of compassion in chapter 14. And So first let's look at the compassion of John toward Herod. That doesn't seem like compassion, right? It doesn't look like compassion, and maybe even it doesn't sound like compassion, but what was Herod's greatest need? He had all the money you could imagine. He had all the power he could imagine. He had that arrogance that goes with all of those things. He had an earthly station in life that was extremely comfortable. He felt even the right and the prerogative to take his own brother's wife to have her. That's how overconfident he was in his circumstance. Herod's greatest need was his soul. And John the Baptist had the courage and the compassion and the love that was required to even speak to Herod about his greatest need. What is the need of Herod if he is going to have if he's going to find grace, if he is going to receive mercy, if he is going to be forgiven, the first thing that has to happen is he has to know what the score is. He has to know what the situation is. He has to know where he stands before God. And John the Baptist cuts through all of that muck and murk in his life. He doesn't talk about Herod's greed. He doesn't talk about his abuse of power. He doesn't talk about his disrespect of the Jewish people. He doesn't talk about his peripheral issue in spiritual or his peripheral interest in spiritual things. He cuts straight to the point with mercy and compassion and you can tell from the statement even with meekness and he just simply says it's just not lawful for you to have this woman 
what courage. Knowing. I don't think it would have been any... I don't think when the men came to bind John the Baptist and throw him in prison, I don't think he was like, what is this? What's happening? What... What did I say? What, what did I do to, to deserve this? I, I mean, I think it was completely expected on his part. He knew exactly. He had come to understand. I mean, Herod's father, we know his reputation at the, around the time of the birth of Christ. We know what the reputation of rulers were in that era and especially in the Roman realm. We understand the harsh iron rule of the Roman Empire in the land of Palestine. So it wasn't like John the Baptist saying, you're committing adultery. You have stolen your wife. You have stolen your brother's wife. It was no great surprise, I am sure, to John the Baptist to find himself in jail. And I don't even think it was probably much of a, of a big surprise when he heard the prison doors opening and people with soldiers with authority coming to arrest him and take him take his head off. I don't think he was shocked at all. I don't think he was shocked at all, but John's compassion is demonstrated, and this theme will run throughout the chapter. We'll see it in Jesus' life. John's compassion was manifested in his humble courage to speak the truth. And if you want to apply that, it's quite obvious is that there are things that need to be said, and there are people to whom those things need to be said, and it's not an aggressive thing. It's not a go-out-of-your-way, beat-the-bushes type of thing. In God's providence, in the role of a prophet, in the scheme of his role and responsibility in Israel, it was perfectly within his purview, and we don't even know what the conversation was that, that led to that statement. There might have been a back-and-forth conversation between Herod and John the Baptist, but at some point, Herod had made it clear that this was his position, and John had responded and made it clear that this was the position of God on the matter. John applied, this is in your notes, John applied the grace of courage and told Herod the truth. How much different is John the Baptist's circumstance from David's circumstance? You know, I would say that even on a natural level, when Nathan the prophet, and he had the same grace of courage to confront David. You know, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He stole Uriah's wife. He, he was guilty of adultery, right? We know that. And I just don't think that, the, that there's similarities in their two situations, but I think that at some point in the heart of Nathan, even on a natural level, it would have been possible for him to consider, yes, I might be putting my life in danger, but I know David is a godly man. John the Baptist didn't have any such hope in this situation. He didn't have the pretense of maybe he'll take it, maybe he'll take it easy. He knew exactly what kind of person Herod was. So when Nathan said to, to David, you are the man in 2 Samuel 12, 7, certainly there was the grace of courage, there was the compassion of telling David the truth, but the difference in those two situations is that at least Nathan would have had some comfort and at least a minimal hope in the integrity and godliness of David not to kill him, and of course David didn't, he repented. He repented at the admonishment of Nathan. Herod doubled down. 
So there's, there's your two choices, right? When you are confronted with truth, when you are opposed by God in your direction, and you are humbly admonished by the Word of God, are you going to have the response of, David, you're right. I am the man. I have done that. That is me. That does describe me. That is who I am. I repent. Or are you going to have the response of Herod and due to the fear of man and due to love of yourself and your station, you're going to harden your heart. And you're going to do any and everything you can, maybe even subtly, you're going to do any and everything you can to stomp out that voice that is exposing you for what you are. It's a really interesting narrative, but it all rests... First, of course, the compassion of John the Baptist comes from where? The compassion of John the Baptist comes from God. This is God's heart to the sinner. This is the, the only hope that the sinner has is to know the score. That's the only hope that we have. Whether we see, this is your notes again, whether we see the godliness of David or the ungodliness of Herod, we should worship God in grace by speaking the truth. By speaking the truth. And I'll just say, I think, I think and this is just a practical application, and this is an expositional outline, and this passage is in 1 through 11 of chapter 14. I think before we leave this passage... I think our challenge is not only to know what to say, our challenge is to know when to say it. I think we speak out of order. I think we speak out of turn. I think we presume upon a platform that God has not necessarily given us and we force our way into that situation to make our voice heard and then the person becomes offended by us and not the gospel message. That's a problem. I think there is an ease and a confidence and a confidence and an assurance when you are giving an answer for the hope that lies within you and there is the salty compassion in your soul for the glory of God and not to let this person know that you know exactly what they're doing and you don't approve of it. Versus, you're in danger here. You're in trouble here. You don't want to go down this road. You don't want to pursue this path, this, this course. And I think you can, you can usually tell with the litmus test if a person is honest in that situation and they will come back to you and if you say, were you offended by the person or were you offended by what the, what the person said? If they say, I was offended by what the person said, then the person probably got it right. If they were offended by the person, the person probably didn't. And I'm not saying that's an absolute inspired litmus test, but it will usually hold true. The compassion of John the Baptist toward Herod. The courage that he applied in the moment. It's comparison to David and Nathan's situation where at least Nathan had a hope and a glimmer that Nathan would repent. But it doesn't matter whether it's either extreme. You're almost always, when you're in the situation of, of providing an answer for the hope that lies within you, you're almost always in a position where you can sort of prognosticate what the response might be. But it really doesn't matter. The, the issue is your attitude, your compassion, your desire for the glory of God, and the courage. You know, that's another thing. That's, that's why we're talking about this. There's a boldness of the flesh where it's preachy and judgmental and harsh. But when a person is called upon to give a testimony and an answer and a, and, and a, and a counsel from God's Word... 
there's usually a fear and trembling in that person's heart as well. There's not just this absolute confidence, I know what to say here, and I'm going to say it, and nobody's going to stop me from saying it. In, in the humility and meekness of Christ, there's going to be some trepidation. There's going to be some, not wavering, but the, the genuine humility of, a lot is at stake here, and I don't want this person to be offended with me, and I want to ensure God help me and give me wisdom and grace to know for certain that I'm to give this answer in this situation. And you're probably going to mess that up even if that's the case. You're going to err from time to time. But the attitude of humility when you're called upon to speak for God should be fear and trembling. Not arrogance and overconfidence and judgmentalism. That's, you, you can see those two don't, they don't hold hands very well. Compassion of John the Baptist toward Herod, verses 1 through 11. And then you have, in verses 12 through 22, you have the compassion of Jesus toward the multitudes and, or toward the multitude and his disciples. And you, you think about this, and I know we we're kind of grow up with Sunday school stories and the like. You know, Jesus fed the 5,000. You know, there were like fifteen or 20,000 people in the crowd here. 5,000 grown men. That means a lot of women and children. I mean, the estimates are between fifteen and 20,000 people fed by these few loaves and fishes. How amazing is that? And the whole point is this theme of Matthew 14 carries forward this compassionate demonstration of God and His heart toward humanity and it's expressed so brilliantly and the the lesson of the 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 loaves and the fishes is that it's not about the earthly provision and the earthly circumstance it's about being with christ and confidence that as you are pursuing christ he will provide exactly what you need he will never leave you falling short he will always not only be there for the sake of fellowship, but as long as He needs you here, if He is going to sustain you in that fellowship, He is going to sustain you in every respect. Christ is a sustaining God. And so the question is not whether or not God will take care of you, but whether or not you will trust Him to do so. Do you see that? The question, is, the question in the feeding of the multitudes is not whether or not God has the capacity to take care of you, the question is whether or not you have the faith that He will do so. If you don't, you are going to be fraught with anxiety and fear and pressure and oppression, and, and it's just going to get all over you. And you can imagine, I mean, even, even in this circumstance where we're talking about one day's provision of a meal, people can grow seriously heightened in angst when they don't eat. You know those commercials, uh, the Snickers commercials, they have the celebrity and, and the person's throwing a temper tantrum and, 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 and they're just not themselves when they're hungry, right? There's, people are just not themselves when they're hungry. And that's, that's the truth. But the illustration of the story is that if you focus on Christ being in you and with you, He will take care of you and He will provide for you what you need. The issue is not whether or not He is competent to take care of you. The issue is whether or not you trust Him to do so. That's the question. That's the parable. 
And Jesus represents on the site, on the scene, in the circumstance, God in flesh providing. Think about it. He sat there for that day and he is provided in totality for every single possible need that they could have. And they're out in the middle of nowhere. They are in the middle of nowhere and God is perfectly competent and able. He's taught them. He's healed them. He's been with them. He's comforted them. And now, He feeds them. So it's not about God's confidence. It's about our ability to trust Him. Do you trust Him? Do you trust? And this is, this is a recurrent theme in Matthew and in the teaching of Jesus that Matthew records. You know, it's back there in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Take no thought for tomorrow, right? Every, every day has enough care on its own, but what? What's the principle? What is the principle that the feeding of the 5,000, I just said it, is, is illustrating is that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and don't stop there, and His righteousness and everything that we need to please Him, whether it's on John Walker's level of having an abundance or whether it's on somebody else's level of hardly having enough to get by, both people are really exactly the same because they have exactly what they need to please God in their life. And God can always be trusted. If you're willing to trust Him, God can always be trusted to take care of you. The question is, do you trust Him to do so? Or are you anxious and you seek to sort of rise up and take control because you don't really, really, really trust that's a hard thing to do. In fact, it's impossible apart from the gift of faith that comes from the miracle of grace. Jesus always set his personal needs aside to meet the needs of those around him. Do you think that has changed? Do you think he would do that for the multitude? and not do it for you? Do you think He would only do it while He was present on earth and not do it when He's gone back to heaven when He Himself said, it's better if I go back? It's better for you if I return to the Father because I'm going to send an even greater and more expansive person in the Holy Spirit to take, to take care of you and to communicate my provisions and my fellowship and my truth to you? John the Baptist showed his compassion toward Herod by telling him the truth. Jesus shows him his compassion toward the multitude by being to them everything they need. Jesus will be... Now, now, now I know this sounds like fundamental old-time Baptist preaching. But Jesus will be everything you need Him to be. That's not the question. The question is, will you entrust yourself to Him and let Him care for you in the way that He sees fit? 
or are you going to struggle and fight and kick and scream and try to take control and, and have him take care of you the way you would have him take? How did the disciples say that Jesus should take care of the multitude? The disciples said that Jesus should take care of the multitudes by sending them into the towns and villages where they could buy something to eat. Jesus shows compassion not only on them, but on the disciples to build their faith. It doesn't build very much. You'll see that in the next passage. But he, he, he communicates compassion to them by giving them the opportunity to meet the need the way it needs to be met so that they can learn as much about the fellowship of God as possible. Would, could, could God have taken care of them by sending them into the local Outback Steakhouse? Absolutely. No problem. That's not how God chose to do it. The disciples usually didn't like the way Jesus to, chose to take care of the situations. They represent all of us, don't they? We don't normally like how God chooses to take care of us because God is, God is sanding off the edges. He's wearing down the flesh. He's working His way into the crevices of our flesh that are resistant to Him. And, and, and of course that's going to be uncomfortable. Of course that's going to be difficult. But it's not about God's competence. And if you broaden out from that a little bit, it's about the, the fact that you know that the way He wants to take care of you is so much better. What if Jesus had said, you're right, send them into the villages? We wouldn't have this. We wouldn't have this story. We wouldn't have this narrative. We wouldn't have this lesson. We wouldn't have what we're talking about right now, which compels us to trust God and His goodness and His competence. So let us imitate Christ in our trust in God. And the way, the way that Jesus... Listen, the way that Jesus communicated the sufficiency and goodness and provision of God was that he demonstrated that in his own life. He was completely, he completely committed himself to the Father and gave himself to the Father's plan and provision for his life. And he already knew that that plan and provision would ultimately lead to his death. Just like John the Baptist knew when he said, it's not lawful for you to have it. But his example of faith to us, and this is where this gets hard, please listen, don't miss this. You're talking about trusting God and not being anxious and trusting in his provision and having the confidence that he can take care of you and he knows what he's doing, it's a matter of your faith, right? You, you understand that principle. Please understand that that is going to be hard. That's not going to be easy. The plan is always laid out that God will always be there and He will always succor you and He will always care for you and He will always provide for you. But that doesn't mean it's going to be in the lap of luxury all the time. It doesn't mean that it's going to be in the realm of, of fleshly comfort all the time. It's going to be in the way that's best for you, just like it was best for the disciples to have to observe Jesus feeding the multitude by this miraculous event. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. God who comforts us in all of our tribulation, He does that. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those that are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There's the secret. What I was going to tell you about facing the trouble. Here's how you face the trouble and build the... Here's how you build the little faith that you have. You ready? Get your mind off yourself. 
Stop thinking about how much you have or how much you don't have. Stop thinking about what you might go through and how God might tr- uh, challenge you and, and, and put pressure on you or how He might not. How you have this circumstance, and some I, I don't know, can't tell you how many times I've heard this in counseling, how come is it this way with that person? And it's not that way with me. How come he has all this and I have nothing? Because God knows what you need. That's why. How do you get your how do you get how do you get your faith strengthened so that you begin to trust God that He knows what He's doing and that He is competent and able to take care of you? Here's how you do it: Get your mind off yourself and put it on your brother. Get your mind off of you, your your abundant or lean circumstance or sick or whatever the case may be. Get your mind off of yourself and reach out to your brother. That's the constant exhortation. Listen, this comes in the context of Jesus being absolutely broken in his soul because he lost someone that he loved more than anybody else on the face of the planet. He loved this man so much that you and I cannot even comprehend it. And he had to sit there and hear the news from his disciples that his head had just been taken off. And do you know why John the Baptist's head was taken off? It was taken off because of Christ. Christ had to bear that knowledge that John died because of him. And so he goes alone to gather himself, to think about it, to orient himself toward his father. How does he really deal with it? How does he really deal with it? He deals with it by reaching out to the multitude. That's how he deals with it. He gets it, he, he go, he gets on with life by getting his mind off of his troubles, and no one would have grieved more over the death of a godly person than Christ would have. He gets his mind off of himself by putting it on somebody else. It's, it's really beautiful. And what do, you, what do you notice when you do that? You notice that you will be comforted by God. If you are not experiencing comfort, first of all, you are not trusting God for His ability to take care of you. And secondly, I guarantee you, you don't have your mind on somebody else. You have it on yourself. Guaranteed. Every time. So that's Jesus' compassion toward the multitude. So you have John the Baptist's compassion toward Herod by telling him the truth. Jesus' compassion toward the multitude by not focusing on himself in his hour of grief, but focusing on the edification of the disciples and the provision for the multitude. He's been everything that they could possibly imagine and need to them in that encounter. Number three. Number three, what happens from there? The, The crowd is fed. They're all satisfied. Jesus sends them on across the way, out across the sea to the other side. And while he does so, while, he, while they're going, he's dismissing the crowd. He's dismissing the crowd. He goes up to pray. So first he's, he's found, just, I, just, I'm going to come back and document this again. But listen, one of the themes of this chapter is, while Jesus is utterly selfless and pours himself out in totality for others, you know what he does do for himself? He takes the time to absorb himself in his Father. He takes, he's, the only thing Jesus is selfish about is his time with God. That's, the, I mean, and he's not selfish. That is, I'm not saying sinfully selfish. The one thing he makes sure he attends to personally in his life to find the strength to trust God for His provision, to find the strength to, when He would turn in on Himself in His hour of grief, to turn out 
to the multitude. How that grace comes to Christ the human being was he cultivated his fellowship with his Father through meditation, and we'll see later, through prayer. It's just a constant reality. So, he uh, has his alone time. He's dismissed the crowd. The multitude has been fed by five loaves and two fish. Disciples go across in the boat, and there are good ways out, maybe a couple of miles. Oh, and, and I'd be remiss if I didn't men mention the abundance of the provision, too. The abundance of the provision What, what was that the, the principle is, is as Jesus gave himself out to the multitude and they were sustained by him, they were not only sustained by him, they gathered up 12 baskets of leftovers. It was not just even to even to the brim. It was pouring over. If you can find that grace to get your mind off of yourself and put your mind on others and trust God that He is competent to take care of you, you will find an abundance. But you won't find that abundance. It'll be in, in measure to your faith, right? That you... And this is not about what you're going to get by way of provision. What you're going to get by way of provision is the abundance of His fellowship. And the abundance of even having a, an abundant situation in a, in a lean circumstance. As soon as they had been fed, Jesus told them to get in the boat, go on over ahead of him, verse 22, to the other side. He dismissed the people. After he did that, he went up on the mountainside to be alone and pray. Later that night, when he was by himself, the boat carrying the disciples made its way well out into the sea, and they were in the middle of a storm. Now before sunup, Jesus approached the boat walking on the water. Here is Jesus' compassion primarily toward Peter. John the Baptist has compassion toward Herod. Jesus has compassion toward the multitude. Here the focus of Jesus' compassion is on Peter. Jesus has compassion on Peter. Jesus' greater compassion was shown to Peter. Listen to this. You know the story, right? Do I need to tell you the story? The boat's being swamped. It's a, it's a tempest. It's a bad storm. Jesus has been by himself. He actually walks out on the face of the water to the disciples within their purview, within their line of sight. They can see him. They're scared. They think it's a ghost. He said, this is not a ghost. It's me. He says, and Peter says what? Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus says, come on out. Jesus gets out. He gets out on the water. He's walking toward Christ. As he is walking towards Christ, the noise and the movement of the storm and the rocking of the boat and the white cats and all the waves and everything takes Peter's attention away from focusing on the beckoning of Christ and he looks at the circumstance. He looks at the storm and the natural appearance of the storm swamps his faith. And as soon as he looks at the storm, he's unable to trust in the competence of Christ to keep him above water. Boy, isn't that beautiful? As soon as he looks at the circumstance, 
He loses the capacity to trust Christ and the fierceness of the storm overwhelms him. And he begins to sink. Jesus' greater compassion was shown to Peter. What does he say when he when he lifts him up? Why did you doubt? You don't have enough faith. And, and, and it, was, it was not that the, even the little faith that Peter had would not have been sufficient to keep him above water. The little faith that he had, he abandoned. It wasn't that what faith he had would not have been sufficient. How do we know that? Because there for a second, he was on the water. He was walking. He was walking on the water. We know that no matter how small his faith was, that humiliates me because I don't think I would have the faith. To, but that's just me. But he had more faith than I did and he had enough faith to trust Christ to walk out to him on the water. He, he abandoned the power of that faith when he took his eyes off of Christ and looked at the power, the natural power and force of the storm. And that will happen to you. Maybe happening to you right now, this morning. You have got to beg God for the grace to reorient your focus on this Christ. This Christ of goodness, this Christ of provision, this Christ of competence, this Christ of compassion and understanding. It wasn't like when Peter started sinking, the Lord said, Oh well, there goes your faith. Down with the ship. Getting what you deserve. That's what I would think would happen to me. I'm getting what I deserve. I took my eyes. If this, is, I was, this is my fault. I'm the one who looked at the overwhelming nature of my circumstances and I sank. This is my fault. I deserve to sink. But the Lord would not have it that way. He reaches and He takes Peter by the hand and He embraces him and He instructs him. He uses Peter's failure and lack of faith to strengthen him. Now, you don't go looking for ways to abandon your faith so that God can strengthen you. You don't do that. That won't work. Okay? But you're going to fail, trust me. So when you fail, when you fail, and I, 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 there's somebody in this room who really needs to be listening to me right now. When you fail, it is normally through those failures that you learn the greatest lessons. So if you abandon your faith, okay, if you love and trust God and He's really at the core of your heart and your life, then how are you going to learn from what you just did, Dougie? That's the issue now. The issue is now, Peter can't get back the moment he started sinking. Peter can't get back the moment when he was at, at the hour of Jesus' greatest trial with him and he started swearing and cussing and he, de he denied the Lord three times. He can't ever get that back. Peter can't ever get back the fact that when, when the Judaizers from Jerusalem came up to Paul, that Peter acquiesced back into a works-based righteousness and legalism, and he lived before the fear of men and the Pharisees, and he shrunk back from grace and faith alone in Christ alone. We, he can't get any of that back. But what do you notice about Peter's life by the time we read those two epistles? He took every one of those lessons to the deepest part of his heart and filed them away and learned from them the rest of his life. He learned from his failure. So that when he would say to the scattered Jews, unto you who believe he is precious, 
That was not pretense. That was learned behavior. He meant that. Because through his failures and through the sojourn of his faith and being swamped by his circumstances and being dominated by the fear of man and being overwhelmed with his pride and being selfish about his earthly needs, he had learned the value of those things over and against the fellowship of the mystery in and with Christ and Christ's people and Christ's body. He learned that. He learned that. Listen, what am I saying in this third point? I'm saying pay attention to your failures. Don't seek your failures out. You will, they will find you. Don't seek failure out. Don't fail on purpose so you can learn a lesson. That's just stupid. Okay? You're going to fail. Pl- pl- I, I mean, I've... <clears throat> Like, I couldn't have failed any worse than I failed yesterday. question is, am I going to learn from my failure, or am I going to forget it and keep repeating the same thing ubiquitously over and over again? Learn from it. Pay, pay attention to your failure. That's God's compassion towards you. That's Christ's patience towards you. That's His love towards you. If you're overwhelmed by circumstance, and you're overwhelmed by anxiety, and you're overwhelmed by stress, and all of these things are eating in on you and swamping your boat then that's what God is working on in your life. He wants you to turn your gaze away from your circumstance and put it on Christ, His Word, and His truth. There is a degree to which if you will do that, you will find a greater grace. And don't forget about when you not only turn to Christ in that meditative, prayerful, learning state, you're also at the same time exercising that muscle by not thinking about yourself and serving others. You've got to keep all of those things in view. And you're still going to blow it big time. Pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention to your failure. Jesus' greater compassion was shown to Peter not in saving his life, but in saving his soul and sanctifying his heart by and through faith. You might want to cut that out and put it in a picture frame. Right? Jesus' greater compassion was shown to Peter not in saving his life. Peter's going to die hanging upside down, by the way. An agonizing, gruesome death. So it wasn't a matter, I don't know what's worse, drowning or that. Take your choice. That's a rough way to go, either way. So it wasn't a matter of, it wasn't God's time for Peter to go. God had a lot more to teach Peter. He had more use for Peter. He had, if you're here, he has more use for you. It's not about the fact that you're going to die. Come to grips with that. That's going to happen. It's about what you're going to learn between now and then. What are you going to learn? Jesus' greater compassion was shown to Peter not in saving his life, but in saving his soul and sanctifying his heart by and through faith. Paul's faith. Paul said, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, what do you mean? Paul's overwhelmed with the immediate, imminent threat of death. And this is how Paul sees it. This is to your service. I'm not there yet. I'd love to get there. And I'd love to get there the easy way. That's probably not going to be my lot. I'd love to get there. Where I recognize that in my greatest hour of trial, God's comfort to me comes through my attention and preoccupation with others. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Jesus was never moved impulsively by circumstance. He used circumstance 
to move his disciples toward the treasure of fellowship. Everybody who saw that and everybody who's read it ever since then, the goal of God was not to be impressed with the power of Christ to be able to walk on water. That's a given. The goal of the passage and the event and the narrative was to bring each one of us and Peter starting into a deeper fellowship with Christ. Reach his hand out. Take his hand. Are your eyes on your circumstance or are they fixed on Christ? Fix your eyes on Christ. Test His provision. I don't mean in a sinful, fleshly way of tempting God and see how much you can get away with. Paul says in Galatians, that's licentiousness, and Paul says the same thing in Romans. That's not the idea. I'm saying step out and obey God and get off of your arrogant, prideful, self-sufficient high horse and stop thinking you can control things and do better than God can and actually trust Him and walk with Him and see if the experience, even if it's hard, is not better than you doing it trying to walk both sides of the fence or doing it all on your own. I'm asking you to try, try that. See if God is not faithful to His Word. To be all to you that He promises to be. And even when you fail, pay attention, learn from that, grow in that. File it away like Peter. Those are verses... That goes up through verse 33. And then the passage ends. Peter said, Peter walked out toward Jesus, saw the ferocity. He said, Save me. So Jesus reached out and took his hand. And as he did, he said, Your faith is small. Why did you doubt? And you know that it was all about Peter's faith. Because the moment they step in the boat, the wind dies. It wasn't, it wasn't serendipitous and Jesus used the storm that was coming up anyway. <laughs> right? Now just as the two of them climbed in the boat, the wind died. And at this point, everyone in the boat was in awe and worship. And you see, that's how God will use the seed of all of our lives. And that's how He used the seed in Peter's life. He interacted with Peter on a personal basis. And at that point... Peter was humbled and he died a small death right there. He died a small death. And then what happened as, Pete, as, the, as the disciples saw how Jesus interacted with Peter, how he didn't just let him sink and how he didn't condemn him, he just simply said, You're, we need to work on your faith. You've got to stop looking at the circumstance. You've got to keep your eyes on me. He didn't condemn him. He didn't judge him. But then as Peter takes that edifying treasure into his own heart, you see that it spreads immediately because a death has occurred there. And immediately it spreads to the rest of the boat and they all worship. They all worship Him. And they said what? Truly, surely, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over the water, they landed at Gennesaret. When the men of that place recognized Jesus, they spread the word that He was there. And the people of that region... They didn't have any Instagram, text, nothing. But buddy, somebody starts raising people from the dead and healing people and everybody's getting well and demons are being cast out and the most eloquent things in the history of the world are being said. It doesn't take long for 
the, the word to spread. Like wildfire. Like wildfire. They brought all their sick to him and they asked him if, he, if, if it would be permissible. I love the way that, that Matthew puts that. With, they asked him if it would be permissible to just let them touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Jesus, verses 34 and 35. This is an expositional outline, by the way, that you have. Not a literary outline. I've got one in there for you. Jesus has compassion on the suffering. Here we see Jesus in the continual process, which he has been doing from the time he fed the, the multitude and walked on the water in this chapter, and even before that, obviously, we've seen that all he's doing is just continually pouring himself out. We see Jesus in the process of emptying himself. Philippians 2, 7, Jesus, Paul says about Jesus, what did he do? He emptied himself. That's the Greek word kino, and it means to make empty, to void, to pour out. He was of the mind to cancel, listen to this, this is the definition of kino. He was of the mind to cancel himself out. To, to cancel himself out for the sake of others. That was, his, that was his mind. And someone asked me a beautiful question this week about what does it mean that when Jesus healed people that somehow that he paid an immediate and eternal price for that. And all, all I know is one of the things that, with, like with the woman with the issue of blood, when she touches his cloak, oh, I don't have an answer for that, how that actually ontologically and physiologically worked in the body and experience of Jesus. But Isaiah tells us that that, 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 that actually happens, that somehow it's not just a wave of a magic wand, but there's a personal price. And we know that the cross included all of the suffering that was necessary to take all of our sins and sorrows and sicknesses on himself. So somehow it, there's a personal price that he had to pay when he emptied himself. It was not without cost. I don't know exactly how that functioned, but I do know that when the woman with the issue of blood touched him, it says this, he felt the virtue go out of him to this woman. He, he experienced that. It wasn't like, it was like, again, like a magic wand and he touched her and she was healed. He, there, was, there, was something, there was something extracted from him when that happened. And that will be true for you too. When you give yourself to others, it's not without personal cost. You're not to expect that there is this sort of cushy, non-sacrificial, you know, you, you don't get spiritual Novocaine for spiritual sacrifice. You, you feel. You feel the sacrifice. You feel the slavery. You feel the service when you have to humble yourself and repent under the hand of God because He has forgiven you much more than He's asking you to forgive someone else. There's, there's a price to pay for that humility. Kino. Jesus was of the mind to cancel himself out. Slavery to others always has a cost, but God always makes up for the cost and more. Am I willing to sacrifice the short term for the long, the temporal for the eternal? Jesus was. In those three years, you see an extremely sharp focus on a person who's living for the future. 
And, and, and listen, his living for the future does not in any way remove him from connection to the present. He's fully in the present. Listen to this. Jesus is fully in the present because he is completely connected to the future. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. By Isaiah says, listen, just I was talking about the power that goes out from him from in the, with the woman with the issue of blood. That's in Luke 8. Isaiah 53 says, with his wounds we are healed. So his wounds heal us. Our sin, our grief, our sicknesses, our sorrow are inflicted. Follow this. Our sins, our sicknesses, our sins, our sicknesses, our shortcomings, our flaws, the curse of our life is inflicted on him. And he feels it, just like he did when he felt that power go out of him with the woman with the issue of blood. That's real compassion. And he asked us to emulate that to be... To be and, and listen, if you're focused on yourself and how bad your life is and how what you don't have or what you would rather have, or you're overwhelmed with your circumstance, it's impossible to be preoccupied with others. You can't do it. You just can't do it. But he, he gets in the boat. They go over to the other side. There's the crowd. They've heard about him. They're waiting on him. And he just continues to pour himself. You tired? Are you tired? He was. But you're not as tired as he was. I'm not as... I'm not as... I, I'm not poured my life out in sacrifice to the point of fatigue and to, to, to the point where even on a day-to-day basis he just didn't have a place to lay his head and he just, he never he never and I don't, please it's, it's important to understand that Jesus did not shrink back from the responsibilities that God gave him I think a lot of our unnecessary stress and pressure and fatigue comes because we give ourselves to the wrong people and the wrong things. And that's exhausting. (laughs) And then we give ourselves to the wrong people and the wrong things, and when the person or persons that God has given us that are our responsibility and are within our purview of slavery, we don't have anything left for for them. Because we've poured it all out on the wrong person and the wrong things. That's unfortunate. Learn the lesson. Find out what those people look like, who those people are. And for us, I can tell you, that's not difficult. It's in this room right here. That's the priority. That's the priority. That's where you start. You give yourself to the people in this room. Don't let yourself be marthaed by your circumstance. What I mean when I say that. She gave herself total... Martha was diligent, zealous. She's probably whistling. But she's completely given herself to the wrong things and the wrong people. And Mary, on the other hand, <laughs> had chosen the better part. And it would not be taken from her. She is the better part. Maybe part of your exhaustion, your stress, and your trouble is because you're careful and troubled about many things that you shouldn't be and many people that you shouldn't be. Simplify your life, biblically speaking. What are my responsibilities? What are my priorities? Who are the people that God has given to me? And to whom does He want me to slave on His behalf? 
Finally, back to the central long time I've been preaching today. It's uh, unusual for me. We'll forego Sunday school today. I'm going to read those. Uh... Yeah, I, gave, I didn't give you any blanks for that last page of your Sunday school notes, so you have those. You should be good. I might go over them next week. Let's, let's finish these notes up, okay? If you go back there to that passage, and I think it's around verse 23, where Jesus went aside. Before he walked on the water, he went aside to pray. And then back earlier in the chapter, you see that he goes up to be alone and to pray. And you see that consistent theme in this chapter where Jesus finds his grace and his strength and his ability to continue to the next thing, the next circumstance, the next purpose, the next ministry, the next task. He finds the strength in being, and I'm using, please don't, don't say I'm being sacrilegious. Selfishly is not the right term, but he guards he, that time that he spends pouring himself and his heart out to God in private. That, he's not giving that up. He's not. That's the first thing. That's what Mary did. That was the in her life. That was the the first thing. Jesus' prayers were profound, but in this they were certainly, or they were in this they were most certainly an entrusting of himself to God. There was just this. I'm sure in Jesus' heart, mind, words, thoughts prayers, this constant affirmation that his desire was to please his Father. Asking for strength. Asking for grace. Asking for the edification of his disciples. Asking for the next thing that was going to happen to have wisdom and grace and humility to approach it in a way that was pleasing to his Father. His, his life was all about his Father. And his Father said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And I pray that that would be the testimony of our life because that's what Paul wanted to hear. He wanted to hear, well done, good and faithful slave. He wanted to hear that at the end of, end of his time. And the reason I think Paul will hear that is for the same reason I think Jesus will hear it. I don't think, I think Paul would have been selfish about his time with God. I don't think he would have let much of anything interfere with that time. Jesus on the cross said what? Another prayer. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus found grace, and he was full of it, and he found fellowship with God through the practice of prayer. Everything I just told you about showing the compassion of God like John did to Herod, like Jesus did to the multitude, and like Jesus did to the, to, to the disciples and Peter when he walked on the water, all of that strength and all of that grace and all of that Virtue comes through devoting yourself to God in prayer. I, I know it sounds like a broken record, but it is true. And it is the constant refrain of Scripture. Scripture, have we given ourselves to this and do we believe it? And listen, I'm, I'm, I'm finished. I'm done. Okay, this is it. Okay. You don't pray about something, pray for something, pray concerning something that you know is the will of God, the heart of God, the mind of God, the Word of God revealed clearly in the Scriptures. You don't, you, right? You pray, you trust, you endure, you pray. You're pray. You not in control of the timing. 
You're not in control of the answer. You're not in control of the when. And you're not in control of the how. But the Scriptures promise that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us and He answers us. Yours is the privilege of participation with Him, and sometimes the challenge of endurance is just persevering in prayer. Now, look, I'm your pastor. I'd like to see this room slammed full of people, Jew and Gentile, hungry, devouring the Scriptures, fighting, crawling all over one another to serve the other person. Just let me, I just, people are just, get out of my way, I'm going to serve this person. You know, I'm praying, I'm, I'm, I'm serving, I'm loving the body. People are being converted. Souls are being saved. It's like the, like the cloak of shadow of Paul's coat when it passed over somebody and they would be healed. I'd like to see that kind of power salvifically flowing through, the, our, flowing through our body like electricity. That's what I want. Well, I'm just going to quit praying about it because I've been praying about that for 24 years and it just hadn't happened. Unless I missed it. It just hadn't happened. Okay, I'm done. I quit. I'm not praying anymore. It just, it hadn't happened the way I wanted it to happen. It hadn't happened in the time frame that I wanted it to happen in. So that means that my prayers are useless. No. Listen, even in the virtue of prayer, praying in faith, there is the fellowship of the mystery in Christ and in knowing that you are enduring with Him. What if He had the same attitude toward time that we did? What if, what if he had the same attitude toward loyalty that we did? What if, what if he would leave us for the willingness that we have? What if he would be willing to leave us for the willingness that we have to leave other people and abandon other people and give up on other people? What if he had the same attitude about leaving you as you had toward leaving somebody else? No, you stick it out. You, you, you stick it out to the end. The question is, do you believe these promises in the Scriptures that they are spiritually inspired and that they're valuable and trustworthy and, and that they have veracity. You, you just stick it out. We're going to sit here and Lord willing, when the Lord returns, if He returns and, and, and this hasn't happened, we're just, going to, we're just going to go right up until the end trusting. That's how you finish. That's how you finish. And you say, man, that sounds bleak. Be connected to the future by actually being connected to, to the present. It's not about what you see. It's the, 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 the realities and the promises and the consequence of spiritual devotion are mostly invisible. They just are. 